You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm George Cedarquist, joined this week by Weston Williams and Ashley Hardgrave. All right. Cha. Mm, cha. Sports Sondo returns with a roundup of the most iconic stadium anthems and why sports fans love them. And then, hey, everyone's a critic. Our listener mailbag reveals a tween's take on an opera. Plus, two minute drill. <sighs> Placido Domingo faces new accusations of misconduct. Oh boy. Hey, look, make sure you uh, subscribe to the podcast. On Stitcher and Spotify, you're going to click follow on Apple Podcasts. Just hit the plus sign. You want to send us a voice memo or email us your hot takes. You want to get your voice heard, operaboxscore at gmail.com. We're doing listener mailbag on this very show. Get your voice heard. Get an OBS beer coaster. Get the OBS lapel pin just for sharing your own hot take. Weston Williams, Back again. Back again. Back at it again. Here to learn about uh, uh, sports things and talk about Placido <laughs> Domingo. Just another Monday here in the closet. There you know. We go, Just, man. Yes. Ashley Hardgrave. Lovely to see you as well. Likewise. It is lovely to see both of you. It is also a lovely time to be a football fan because we are now in playoff time in the National Football League. Uh, It's been an exciting week, but I have to tell you something that's not exactly related to my boyfriend, Joe Burrow, Mm -hmm. winning his playoff game against the Ravens. Um, (laughs) Although we are deeply in love. Don't tell him that, but we are. Um, Is Okay. So every now and then they will mic players and just record them and sort of broadcast some of the recordings directly from the field. The the pinnacle of my Sunday was when uh, the the score has a TikTok account and they released recordings of Dolphins player Christian Wilkins on his hot mic. And he is just so precious and he's so funny and he just has the <laughs> he's just got the best nature out on the field. And you can just tell that he's a fun guy having a good time. He's like, you know, joking with the refs. and He's talking to the players and it's do yourself a favor either if we can work the video or the audio in here great or go to the score on tiktok and watch the christian wilkins hot mic act it's so good the price is wrong billy oh ref 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 oh yeah you about to get it you about to get it right there you about to get this no don't say that i'm not scared of you give me a cheeseburger and some waffle fries the black book little black book Got all your ex-girlfriend's lovers in there? Maybe a little bit. You ain't slick. I caught you. Last Monday, we were taping the show while the football national championship was happening, and we were laughing. That's what we'll call it. Wow. That's Just... what we'll call it. <laughs> Ouch. 65-7, I think, was the final. It was like one team was playing football, and the other team was playing basketball. <laughs> well, the, mm, here's the thing. This is, Okay. Uh, if, I, if I want to put my sassy pants on for a second, this is what happens when you put a Big 12 team up against an <laughs> SEC team. If I'm not putting my sassy pants on, it says that there may be some tweaks that need to be made to the college football playoffs. Uh, so we will see how this goes. But I know that there are some uh, fans uh, that rhyme with schmalish mama who were very upset uh, at the way the final standings laid out. There were also fans of Michigan and Schmoshmio State that also felt their two teams should have rematched in the final. They were schmuck and schmished. Yeah, they were. Yeah. <laughs> Let's talk some opera. And now, 
where the histories of music and sports collide. Boom! Sportsando! Sportsando, it's our segment where we look at the aural audio side of music and opera and combine that with sports. I've been thinking a lot, having been to some live sporting events recently, about the songs that they play in the stadium. Mm. And we're going to take a deep dive on the show in our first segment to deconstruct some of those and put them into some different categories. The first category, I think, has to be the oh-so-predictable category. So obviously, <laughs> like Queen's We Will Rock You, House of Pain, Jump Around, mm -hmm. Guns N' Roses, Welcome to the Jungle. I'm sure the Cincinnati Bengals were probably playing that song this past weekend. Sure Ray were. Charles hit the road jack. Anytime somebody in an NHL game goes to the penalty box, that is always the go-to song. What, what, are, what are the predictable ones that I'm missing? I mean, uh, uh, they you often hear Zamstag aus Licht is a good one. <laughs> Uh, that's a great one to sort of intimidate the other team. I feel like uh, from the House of the Dead overture gets played a lot whenever I go oh. to, uh, you know, a, oh, a hockey game. Oh, that toe tapper. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, there's, there's a lot of good ones out there, I'm sure. I've never been to a sports game, uh, uh, as you can probably tell. But, I would uh, have never guessed. <laughs> I do think it's very funny because there's like there's the stuff that happens in the stadium. And one of the things that makes a good stadium song a good stadium song is the the ability for even non-musical people to get hyped and get involved, mm, whether mm -hmm, that's mm -hmm. like the boom, boom clap of We Will Rock You. One that's not on this list that I thought about that is kind of a weird sleeper, but happens at way more games than you want to admit, the chicken dance. Oh, yeah, that one does, that one happens a lot, yeah. And and that's another subcategory of the oh-so-predictables are the oh-so-predictables with dance moves. See also YMCA. Mm. Well, you know, uh, I, I was I was joking er earlier about having never been to sports, uh, but I was in marching band in high school. Not to brag, um, but uh, I. Oh do... no, that's not something that one would <laughs> brag about. But uh, it really is. A, 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 there's a beating heart of sports music and the sort of coming together for a lot of people. You know, I, I feel like especially with bands, it's the only time you hear uh, live acoustic music really in out in the world anymore. You know. Uh, I know we're about to talk probably more about, you know, pre-produced songs, but, you know, if you're on the same part That's of fair. TikTok that I am, um, recently you will have seen a lot of uh, TikToks flying around attempting to conduct a marching band arrangement of, of Verdi's Dies Irae, which you do <laughs> hear sometimes. You also hear Hulse the Planet Mars happens a lot, you know, uh, and it's a it's it really is a kind of a, it is the living beating heart is musical, is operatic, you know, and I think that's a great thing to uh experience my best friend's little brother did an arrangement for our high school marching band of oh fortuna from carmina barana hope <laughs> county didn't know what hit him it was I great bet. my my marching band had a tradition this is absolutely true where the last day of the school year we would get together with an uh, a uh, an arrangement of carmina barana and attempt to sight read as much of it as possible. It's awesome for like two straight hours, and it was the best day every that single is so, year. That is so. That is so cool. Yeah. Uh, the next block is the Chicago songs, right? So we're a Chicago-based <gasps> show, so we, we got to look at these. We'll, we'll start with the Bears. It, actually, it, it's hard to know which one to start with of the two iconic Bears songs. One very well known, the other one perhaps less known, although it's you know the fight song. 
Yes, you know, our beloved fair city of Chicago, we we really do take this music and sports connection to heart. Uh, and for every one of our major league sports teams, there are very specific songs that are part of the iconography of our professional teams. We'll mm. start with our beloved Chicago Bears, even though they're not doing much to be beloved at the moment. So the main <laughs> theme song that is considered their fight song is called Bear Down Chicago Bears. And it was written by Al Hoffman, who went under the studio named Jerry Downs. Um, he's a songwriter that wrote actually a lot of like jazz and American songbook stuff, likes of Ella Fitzgerald, Frank, Nat King Cole, Tony Bennett, even Bette Midler did some of his stuff. Um, but Bear Down Chicago Bears that he wrote uh, was in 1941. It was during that like real monsters of the Midway era. It still <laughs> plays with every Bears touchdown today. Um, couple of little fun facts about this. Uh, there's actually a recording of George Schulte and the Chicago Symphony Orchestra and Chorus Amazing. from 1986 because Bizarre. Bear Fever hit because that was the year that the Bears won the Super Bowl. of the other bear song that is pretty famous at least in these parts but maybe not nationwide where some of our listeners are is the super bowl shuffle yes the actual super bowl shuffle it's a bear song but it's not like the fight song they actually went and recorded it uh at park west which is a nightclub here in chicago right. two months before they won the super bowl oh, i have yeah. a whole list of trivia about this walter payton actually was superstitious and didn't Sweetness. go record with the rest of the team that day he did yet he had to go and film his stuff separately after they won and things came out because he didn't want to jinx it. Um, Super Bowl Shuffle is a, we'll call it a rap, uh, done by the 1985 <laughs> Super Bowl winning Chicago Bears. That song was actually nominated for a Grammy in 1987 for Best R&B Performance. It did lose. Who did it lose to? It lost to Prince for Kiss. Yes. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. What, what a bizarre year at the Grammys, let me tell you. If I said to you, serious by Alan Parsons' project, you would have no idea what I was talking about. But if you heard this- well, I would, but I don't know if they would. You might know what I meant. If there is one song that mixes history and music and sports together, it has to be that song. That is just synonymous with the first and the second three-peat of the Jordan Bulls era. That is correct. So like we mentioned, that is Serious by the Alan Parsons Project. The song came out in 1982, which was actually long before, and by long, I mean two to three-ish years before the Bulls really started to get into sort of having their eyes on that championship run. It became the lead-out song for the Bulls when they were playing at the United Center in the Chicago uh, the Chicago Sports Arena, I think is what it was called before that, because one of the PA announcers for the team actually heard it playing in a movie theater, and he was like, hey guys, we gotta use this song. And ever since then, it's been like the lead out song for the Bulls. It's been used for other teams as well, but it's really, it's it's very synonymous with the Bulls. Uh, and that like completely unmistakable opening riff that's there, that's a, that's a loop that's created by a clavinet, uh, which is an <laughs> electronic version of a clavinova. So there you go. So the Hawks, who also played at what was the old Chicago Stadium and is now the United Center, they also have two songs, apparently. One of them I know and I don't like. The other one I don't know <laughs> and I also don't like. 
Because I don't know. Uh, how dare you? It is so freaking jazzy, by the way. Uh, okay, so the Chicago Blackhawks are our National Hockey League team here. They're part of the original six. Their main song that has been with them for a very long time is a song called Here Come the Hawks. And it's been performed by Dick Marks and his orchestra. Does that last name sound familiar to you if you're over the age of 37? Maybe. Because Dick Marks is the father of 90s pop sensation Richard Marks. Wherever you go, whatever you do, Carl I'll be right Marks, here waiting. But, yeah. you know, no, yeah. friend. No, <laughs> <laughs> also here come the hawks is here come the hawks is that a here comes the bride reference you know no it is let me tell you this guy is legitimately a toe tapper if we can put a clip in here we should because it i mean that thing goes and it goes fast it's a fun little jazzy ditty um so the version that dick marks recorded actually still is played before the hawks pregames now that recording's from 1968 mm -hmm. um also there's an organist that plays a like a truncated version of it live at the end of each period so the first one is this like big band jazzy palooza from the late 60s uh and then the second song that we have is chelsea dagger by the Fratellis, Ugh. which is what you don't like that song, George? I find it incredibly irritating to listen to. Uh, apparently, there's a recording <laughs> of it with uh, Ricardo Muti conducting. that we first brought up in the beginning of mindless songs that like you don't have to necessarily be musical to be able to like bounce along with Chelsea Dagger is like right in the throes of that this is not a song that was written for the Hawks didn't have anything to do with the Hawks but somebody that was in the Hawks orbit adopted it right before the Taves and the Kane era of the Hawks began sort of in the late 2000s beginning of right. the 2010s right before they started their stanley cup run yeah, that started yeah. in 2010 it's still used today it's like you cannot hear that song without thinking of the chicago blackhawks john um, fratelli of the scottish indie rock band who recorded the song he said yeah i still don't really understand why the blackhawks adopted it by the way <laughs> this song reached number five in the uk music chart it is it is so repetitive and so uninspiring i'm i am not a fan but i will explain later on in the sports Ando segment why i think it's so popular the cubs song i adore when the Cubs had their World Series run in 2016, oh my God, the kids and I were just singing this song day in and day out. Even Weston it's... probably knows this song. <laughs> Cups Go, of course, is the number, the Steve Goodman classic, which has like a, a WGN Cubs radio connection, I think. 
It does. He wrote this song uh, in 1984. He was actually, we'll call it commissioned by uh, WGN Cubs Radio. I think they're 720. Um, they asked him to actually write this song because he was a diehard Cubs fan. He was a Northern Illinois native uh, and they wanted something new for the Cubs. What they didn't know about this at the time is that Steve Goodwin was actually ill. Uh, he had, I believe, mm. cancer mm. and he ended up dying later in the year of 1984 after he wrote this song. It was famous with the team for a number of years. It kind of petered out a few years after his passing in the late 80s and then it came back with a vengeance in 2000 and now it's played after every single cubs win so yes there is some sort of recording somewhere of mood basically anytime one of our pro teams gets to the national championship of that field whatever it is they'll come to the cso and often to the cso chorus and ask for a recording <laughs> there's definitely footage of us in our cso t-shirt singing go cubs go somewhere the other reason that go cubs go is so great is that Steve Goodman manages to make a rhyme, which is they got the style, they got the speed to be the best in the National League. Stephen Sondheim who? <laughs> Sondheim who? Sondheim who? You tried rhyming with <laughs> National League. Okay, so not to be outdone, the Sox have two songs as well. One they, of them, which they, I don't know, and the other one, which I adore. They kind of do. Uh, so the official fight song, like everywhere that's documented, the official fight song of the Chicago White Sox is called Let's Go, 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 White Sox. Yes, three goes. Don't say Let's Go, White Sox. There are three <laughs> goes in there. Uh, and so that song, Let's Go, 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 White Sox, is by Al Trace and Wally Jagello, who Al Trace is actually, he was a Sox minor leaguer. Mm, so he yeah. played for one of the minor league teams of the Sox. Um, they wrote it, and it was recorded by a group called Captain Subby and the Buccaneers. Uh, I wish I were kidding, but that's the name of the group that recorded it. Um, and this uh, Let's Go, Go, Go White Sox uh, was recorded in 1959. It was heard off and on throughout the second half of the 20th century. And then it kind of came back again in the early 2000s and became more of a staple that you would hear at the park. And that was just in time for the second song that is sort of associated with the White Sox that our sweet friend George loves, which is Don't Stop believing by journey. <laughs> Weston, journey, you have man. to know that song. Tell me you know yeah, that song. I have heard that one. Yes. That one I've encountered. You. Uh, luckily. <laughs> that is good. Uh, so this song, Don't Stop Believing My Journey, it is synonymous with the 2005 White Sox World Series Championship. If you lived in this town in 2005, you could not swing a dead cat in that fall without <laughs> hearing the opening piano riff. Yes, that song is from 1981. Yes, Steve Perry is not even with the band anymore. Yes, it talks about Detroit. But if you know Sox fans, you know the Don't Stop Believing is 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 for us at that time. <laughs> There's lots of sports teams that we haven't mentioned in Chicago. Chicago Sky, the um, Red Stars, but the Chicago Fire, yikes. Well, football team, a soccer team, right? So... Okay, so there's a lot. They, okay, I don't know if you've ever been to a fire game. There's I like have. fifty. There's fifty-seven different chants. If you know, you've been. <laughs> They're in thirty-seven languages. They all start them at different times. The fire fans are incredibly rowdy, and that's what I love about them. But the one specifically that I think is hilarious that they really associate with the team is "Hot Time in the Old Town Tonight" by Theodore Oof, Metz from yeah. that old gem from 1896. Classic. So I'm sure. 
if you if you recognize at all the the title, you know that this is that song that tells the tale of Mrs. O'Leary and the cow, which is part of the reason for the Great Chicago Fire. At least it was before the city pardoned the cow ten years ago. It's a whole thing. <laughs> um, it's not really relevant to sports at all, except for the fact that at the end of every verse you get to yell "fire" three times really loudly, and apparently that is <laughs> enough for Chicago Fire fans. <laughs> That's our Chicago block of sports on but there's a couple other themes that I sense when I, you know, watch a sporting event on TV or I'm in the stadium, and that is musical theater. This is perhaps the most unlikely connection, and maybe I should have left it to the end, but there's a number of songs taken from Tin Pan Alley and the golden age of musicals that have worked their way into America's and uh, Europe's sports stadiums. First of all, and it uh, pains me to have to talk about the Yankees ever. <laughs> but it is true that every time the Yankees win, they play New York, New York, which although written by Candor and Ebb was of course made famous by old blue eyes Frank Sinatra singing it. There's a little nugget about win versus lose that uh, that you came up with that I did not know and I think is hilarious and you need to share with the rest of the class. Ah, uh, yes. Well, apparently that uh, the Sinatra version of New York, New York, was sung every time that the Yankees won. And every time they lost, there's a Liza Minnelli version that was played. (laughs) Now, you can say a lot of things about Liza Minnelli, but she does not suffer fools gladly. And I bet she was pissed when she found (laughs) that out. I don't know if she cares about baseball, so. I don't know. We'll get her on the show one day and ask her. (laughs) For this one question. If if Liza Minnelli's on the show, I'm most certainly not asking her about that. Let's oh, I that. have so many other things to ask her, let's though. Make that, let's make that very, very clear. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, choking on my own saliva here, thinking about Liza Minnelli. The um, <laughs> Liverpool Football Club, famously, I think this has to be the most famous song, certainly in England, to accompany a sports team, which is the song You'll Never Walk Alone. What? Okay, A of all, tell me about this, because that just feels... It's a little too much of a tearjerker for like what I consider soccer hooligans of Liverpool. So what do you know about how this came about? Yes, I think that it um, uh, was played um, in these like in local by local bands in the area um, in a cover that version. Okay, that's cute. In a okay. cover version by a band called Jerry and the Pacemakers. <laughs> and um, that, I mean, so first of all, so here we are in the home of the Beatles, right? So like music is important culturally to those fans, like they can appreciate it. And very quickly, it became the anthem of Liverpool Football Club and then added as the official motto on the club's coat of arms that is what? stitched into their shirts. If you That's so fascinating. <laughs> Next time you watch a Liverpool shirt, which is probably going to be watch a Liverpool match, which will be never, look at their logo and it says you'll never walk alone. That's so funny. I'm also obsessed with the idea that there's a parallel universe in which the Liverpool uh, Football Club um, uh, sings a piece by the Puccini version of Carousel that was never made. Uh, (laughs) It's also the phrase has also been wrought into the iron gates that lead you into the stadium. Now, the flip side of this song is 
I th- when I think about Liverpool, I think about what was known as the Hillsborough disaster in 1989, which very briefly is when Liverpool played another team, Nottingham Forest, in a, a stadium in Sheffield called Hillsborough. And because of dreadful crowd control, many people were crushed to death in this oh. press of fans. It was something like, um, I think, 75 people were killed. Ooh. And then actually the, the government has just recently in the last couple of years completed an investigation into this disaster. But in the memorial service for these fans, uh, a cathedral choir in Liverpool sang, you'll never walk oh. alone. Stop. And those words oh brought on a very different uh, meaning. <sighs> I'm the, not laughing. I'm just trying not to cry. It's not very it's not very funny. It's sort of miserable, but I mean oh. that is the power. Well, let us add like Carousel is not a particularly light show. It's not no. a, it's not a feel good. It's not a feel good. a little bit more feel good as we round out this block is West Ham United which is in London their signature song is one called I'm Forever Blowing Bubbles which is I, okay. a well-known English <laughs> musical song from the 20s which has been adapted okay. by one of the most ferocious hooligan groups in British football I- <laughs> I, it's truly amazing just the the range of music that can be incorporated into sports from you know you'll never walk alone to blowing bubbles from 1918 uh it's it's that's that's truly wild to me but i I'm, i have a question we we've, we've been talking about these more obscure ones why why is it that the ones that get all the attention are your like sweet carolines your your eye of the tiger your Seven Nation Army, or your Chelsea Dagger that you, George, so much despise? What's your theory? Here's the thing. It's, I think it's obvious. Is that, like, you basically don't need to know the lyrics. Sweet Caroline, bow, bow, bow. 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 Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> right? The White Stripes, uh, the White Stripes, Seven Nation Army, do, 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 Yeah, uh-huh. Right? I, the Tiger, bow, 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 bow. Uh, bam, bam, bam. Exactly. So it, it's sort of the the dumb, dumb, dumb effect, uh, as it it's, were. It's the dumb, dumb, dumb effect for the dumb dumbs, right? Who are like, <laughs> you know, drooling dumb, into dumb, their da, beer. Chelsea Daggett. There you go. That's why they're so popular. And frankly, who am I to say that it needs to be higher than that? The whole point of music in sports is to try and create a home field advantage, right? Is to try and get, whether this is in college football or in pro hockey or anything in between, it's to try and get the fans on one page, singing their hearts out, supporting their team, making some noise, making it hard to hear. And if that means there's no lyrics and we can all sing the three notes of the melody, so be it. 
Well, do we have anything more highbrow to sort of like close it off with, you know? The only highbrow thing that I could find was uh, Real Madrid, the um, Spanish soccer team, uh, has something called the Himno del Centenario, which was written by uh, Jose Caño, one of Spain's like premier composers. It was a song that was written for the football team's centenary in 2002, and uh, yikes, the legendary Placido Domingo built it in it. Sando segments past, we'll know that there is a whole section uh, back that we did in 2022 about Nessun Dorma and how Aturindo Aria became a soccer anthem, specifically the Pavarotti version, but eventually we go on to Andrea Bocelli's version for Euro 2020. So it's not just pl- it's not just Pavarotti's, but yes, Nessun Dorma is in fact a soccer anthem. To wrap it up, next time you're in the stadium singing along, whether that's Madison Square Garden or your local high school baseball game, football game, sing out, sing loud, and get behind your home team on whatever that stadium anthem is. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast, Stitcher and Spotify. You're going to click follow Apple Podcasts, hit the plus sign. We're recording on Martin Luther King Day, 2023. Ashley, what's one way to celebrate? Uh, not by celebrating the amount of black head coaches in the NFL, uh, in the spirit of the day, a friendly reminder that we are now at two black head coaches in the NFL. We are down to Todd Bowles and Mike Tomlin. Yeah. Lovey Smith got fired from the Texans for reasons that I'm still not 100% sure about. Um, and you know, for a league that's 70% black, there should be, I don't know, more black head coaches. Uh, I just wanted to speak that out into the universe. There should be more. Also, Lovey Smith is a better coach than anybody gives him credit for, so some team needs to snatch him up. The only problem with Lovey Smith is that beard. Well, that, that beard's got to go. <laughs> that Everything is a else, handsome man. He know? can wear whatever he wants on his he, face. He, he, took, he is allowed. He took the Bears to a Super Bowl. Yeah, I'm he just did. saying he did. 2008. We had Super many. Bowl. We had many other problems that year, so uh, that still remain like quarterbacks. Go ahead. Hey, uh, what's this? It's the listener mailbag. 
Yeah, you ain't got something to say? Then yeah, all right, you can say something. This is listener mailbag. Hey, Opera Box Score, this is PJ Ewing. I'm here in New York at the Met on Christmas Eve, middle of the day. What could be better than that? I ask you, really, I'm asking. This is such a delight to be here. We're seeing uh, the abbreviated production of the Magic Flute, Mozart's Magic Flute, 1791. That was the first production. 1900 at the Met? That's a long gap between its first production and the New York debut. I guess the New York thing had to get going. But we're here, my son and I, he's 12. This is his second opera. This is his first time seeing the Magic Flute. What did you glean from Papageno, Papagena, Tamino, Pamina? What, what's this thing all about? Old ladies are mean. Old ladies are mean. Well, okay, I'm, I'm not sure that's going to work for this opera audience. Any, any other observations, Finn? This flute is the best instrument. Why do you say flute is the best I instrument? I play it. Because you play it. I see. Finn is really not interested in this conversation. He wants to dive into the cookie that he's holding in his hand, so we're going to let him be. Finn, thank you for your tremendous insights here at the Metropolitan Opera. We're really excited. It's about 15 minutes to go, and we'll be in. I just love reporting to everybody at Opera Box Score. It's a joy. It's like a highlight when I come to the opera to share whatever's going on. Thanks a lot to PJ and Finn for submitting to the listener mailbag. You know, sometimes... Children are the best critics because they don't they don't pretend to pay attention. Like if they just want to eat their cookie, they'll eat their cookie. And honestly, I will say uh, uh, old women are mean is a valid interpretation of what Mozart might have been trying to say with, <laughs> with that opera, unfortunately. Uh, I, I just uh, I loved hearing from Finn, especially uh, because, you know, uh, I believe he said it was his second opera that he's ever been to. I wonder what his first one was, but. My first opera. I think it was Lulu. Was, yeah, <laughs> my first opera ever was Magic Flute back when was it I was really. Yeah, when I was five or six Aww. years old, yeah. Opera Birmingham. I think mine was too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I think mine might have been Magic Flute as well. Actually. Yeah, I, that's why I'm wondering what what was the what was the first one for Finn? But yeah, I mean, like, congratulations! I, it's a valid interpretation. Uh, PJ, keep them coming. We love all of your listener mailbags. Uh, and Finn, let us know what the best cookie at the Met Opera is, because that's are, very important to all our fans. Price, pricey cookies. You oh know, yeah, flute, I bet. Now, now, Finn, here's what I'll tell you. As the old lady, the resident <laughs> old lady on this panel, I will tell you some old ladies are mean. Not all of us, however, are trying to kidnap our daughter and keep them from getting married. I assure you we're not all like that. But some old ladies, yes, are mean. Rarely, uh, rarely has Ashley Hardgrave done that. It, I've only once kidnapped like moon. two people yeah, and yeah. I let them both go. J- so. just, just, to, just to go back for a second. So all three of us started off we believe on on magic flute it's interesting right like that that's not happenstance why is it such a good starter opera why do opera companies believe that it's such a a good starter opera even if it's in a reduced version which i think is what they did at the met but certainly here in chicago i know the lyric has also done you know a boiled down version of the magic flute I mean, I, I think it comes down to like there's lots of little uh, little effects like you have the dragon at the very beginning, which is, you know, wakes all the kids up. There's the ease of translating the uh, the spoken dialogue into something the kids will understand. Lots of catchy right. tunes. 
simplistic moral messages, which, uh, you know, uh, have not necessarily held up super well in the 21st century, but, you know, did hold up for a very long time. I mean, I I always whenever I go and see Magic Flute, it's always the one opera that has, you know, the average age of the audience is not, you know, two or three times the age I am, you know, mm-hmm. it's like uh, you'll, you'll see kids all over the place, even today, um, which, which is interesting because, you know, I think there are better operas out there for young kids and some written specifically for young kids. But I think that there's something very real about like the name recognition of Mozart and uh, and the tunes that are recognizable and all of that. Well, it um, feels like you're going to see real opera, right? Like if you yeah. know, if you recognize the name of Mozart, as you say, Weston, like there's a lot of characters. It's magical and fantastical. It moves quickly. The music shifts and is extremely catchy. Uh, I will say, I think we can also agree that like that show is also 35 minutes too long, right? They do the trials <laughs> of fire and water and you're like, yep. this is awesome. Roll credits. Oh, wait, now there's like another like whole section. Okay. I mean, there is. I also want to I want to add this point in is that one of the reasons I think this makes a good it's it's a nice transition. And I don't think just necessarily for children, but I think even just for like the novice to opera, Magic Flute is always a nice way to start because you don't have to work that hard to understand the surface layer of the story. There are deeper layers to the story that you don't have to worry about and you don't have to pick up. It's kind of like The Muppet Show, if you think about it. So like Mm. The Muppet Show for kids, it's like it's the characters and it's funny and they're doing like goofy things. But then underneath that, what the kids aren't going to pick up on are all of the adult things and the things that are entertaining your mom and dad. So like when you're a kid watching The Muppet Show, you love it for all these reasons. When you're an adult watching The Muppet Show, you're like, oh, this is legitimately funny even to grown-ups so pj and finn if you haven't started the muppet show i encourage you to also check that out as well um but it's i feel like the flute is very much the same way like the visuals and the obvious surface layer of the storyline is one layer of appreciating the flute when you grasp that or you get to a place where your brain can absorb beyond that or you're mature enough to absorb beyond that then you get into the more underlying nuances of the other parts of the story and it becomes a different and for most people more interesting piece and I think for me, the reason I really latched onto it when I was five or six years old was because that was before my voice dropped and I could sing every note in the Queen of the Night aria. And I did <laughs> incessantly throughout the house for like five years until my voice decided to end up here. <laughs> I remember auditioning at what was then called Michigan Opera Theater to be oh, one, of the, one of the three boy sopranos in that. That opening yep. sequence, but um, Pamina was my first full role. All these connections, I love All it. Hey, you know, Finn, there's there's hope yet. Who knows? Hey, send <laughs> us a voice memo. You can email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. You're going to get the OBS beer coaster, the OBS lapel pin, uh, no cookies, sadly. Two minute oh, drill. <laughs> That's delicious, and it's right now. This just in, the two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened at Opera Land this week. Tenor turned baritone turned public disgrace Placido Domingo is facing more accusations of sexual misconduct. An anonymous singer claims Domingo asked to touch the singers behind during a rehearsal and attempted to kiss her on a separate occasion. 
quote, if you tell him no, there will be consequences, and if I say yes, I don't even want to think about it. And that's what the singer says. One of the first things they tell you is don't go up in the lift alone with Placido Domingo. Charming. Lithuania National Opera and Ballet Theater has announced it will drop all works by Russian composers in light of the war in Ukraine. Quote, we've decided to follow the recommendation of the Ministry of Culture and refrain from public presentations of works by Russian authors because culture in Russia is too closely associated with the aggressive politics Ouch. of the country, reads the press release. The company has already canceled ballets by Prokofiev and Stravinsky. The Santa Fe Opera has announced the 44 members of its 2023 apprentice program for singers. The roster includes artists from across the USA, as well as from Puerto Rico, East Africa, Australia, Canada, China, South America, and South Korea. More specifics after the drill. A 7-Eleven in Austin, Texas is blasting opera over its loudspeakers to deter unhoused people from a nearby encampment from soliciting and leaving items in front of the store. Quote, we heard of other businesses coming up with solutions to figure out how to eliminate people from congregating in the parking lot, said owner Jagat Patel. Uh, studies have shown that classical music, opera music, is annoying and keeps people from congregating. Ah, yes, kicking people while they're down and insulting classical music. <laughs> My favorite. Charming. The World Economic Forum, of all organizations, has announced that Renee Fleming will be one of the recipients of this year's Crystal Award, honoring exceptional artists and cultural leaders whose important contributions to society have made a tangible impact on improving the state of the world. Mezzo Isabel Leonard will be making her big screen debut in She Came to Me, a film about a composer with writer's block who goes searching for inspiration. She will appear with Peter Dinklage, Marissa Tomei, Joanna Kulig, Brian Darcy James, and Anne Hathaway. The film debuts at the 73rd Berlin Film Festival next month. In trade news, Opera Europa has elected a new president, Ignacio Garcia Belunger, currently the director of the Teatro Real Madrid. Martin Glazer, general director of the Brno Opera House, was elected VP alongside Laura Berman, the intendante of Staatsoper Hanover. Charming! The Royal Albert <laughs> Hall has appointed James Ainscoff to be its new CEO. Ainscoff previously worked at the Hall from 08 to 2017 as Director of Finance and Administration and later as COO. He will take on this new position in Spring 23. And on this day, January 16th in 1728, it was the birth of Italian opera composer Niccolo Piccini. In 1739, uh, Handel's Oratorio Saul premiered. In 1745, uh, Handel's Hercules premiered. It's a big day for Handel. In 1800, it was the first performance of Luigi Cherubini's opera La Dujonne in Paris. In 1934, uh, American mezzo-soprano Marilyn Horn was born. Happy birthday, born this day in Bradford, Pennsylvania. And in 1935, it was the first performance of Mascagni's opera Nirone. And that's your two-minute drill.
And to continue our Handel Palooza on this cast, that was birthday gal Marilyn Horn singing some Handel, Fammi Combateri, in Orlando, Chicago, 1986, with Sir Charles Macarus conducting. Uh, this is a little behind the scenes peak, folks, but um, George uh, was like, that's too much Handel. I don't know these, these Handel pieces. <laughs> uh, we can't have them. But I knew that Oliver will be miss- listening one day, and we had to have all the Handel operas uh, and oratorios ready to go. Uh, I, I think I can handle it. <laughs> I will say. <laughs> technically, of course, these, uh, these are not operas. They're oratorios, before Oliver corrects me. But I will say that because uh, Handel abandoned opera uh, and started uh, writing oratorios as a more accessible English language alternative for the British audiences, they're essentially operas. So... I mean, there is so much Handel. It's, it's like they're giving it away like it's free, free <laughs> drink. <laughs> Gross. You're fired. No more with you. Fired. Speaking of fired, let's talk about Blasto allegations. (laughs) Don't mingo. Oh my God. George, you're on fire today. I mean, where's that uh, Dodo Domingo? I mean, hey, Ding Dong Domingo. There it is. Do anything else but be around women, Domingo. We're not not talking about Domingo's Ding Dong, all right? Okay, here's what's super gross about this. It's like, I mean, first of all, it says in the news, uh, in the news that we reported that he asked to grab this woman's behind. First of all, at least he asked gross. No, um, the way he did it was even worse. Um, so yeah. notable uh, pioneer of journalism, the New York Post, uh, wrote a little bit more about what happened here. And uh, so the singer says, per the Post, he told me in front of everyone. So this was like in a rehearsal. Listen, yeah. God, can I put God. my hand in one? of these lovely pockets of yours i was wearing trousers with an embroidered back pocket so it's they wrote it like oh he asked gross no he asked in a public forum in a way that would like make it even harder for her to like speak up for herself and advocate so like it's just even oilier than one would imagine it was listen can i put my hand in one of those lovely pockets of yours no i'm going to set myself on fire Oh my yeah, goodness. I I I don't understand how he still has a career in Europe. I I just you know, these things keep happening. I mean, granted, this is no uh, what was it, Argentinian sex sex ring like the last scandal he had, but you know, this is. I would encourage anyone listening to try to divest yourself of Placido Domingo. You know, it's time we moved on collectively as a art form. You know, it, it's just the point where like you know, I listened to a recording with. Placido in it, I'm like, I feel gross afterwards, even if it's a, if it's a good recording, you know, without him, you know, I'm just like, we need him out. We need him not uh, not doing music anymore. That's just what we need. I think the thing that's such a bummer for me is that, you know, we're definitely we're all here. We're in the States. We're Americans. We're going by American cultural standards and how this is now true, thankfully true. deemed inappropriate. And there are other parts of the world in the culture where feminine agency isn't as isn't as advocated for and stood up for as it is right. in the States. And it's not even freaking great here. So that's the thing that I think makes me the angriest about this is that we're, you know, we're applying these American standards and deeming this something that's inappropriate. It should be inappropriate everywhere. It's just slightly less inappropriate in some other places in the world. So anyway, I'm just mad. I'm going to set myself on fire. You guys take over. Well, here, Here's the <laughs> thing, though. To its credit, like Washington National Opera cut him from the Kafritz Young Artist Program, right? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think LA Opera got around to 
undercutting him and the association that he had with that company. So it feels like American companies, to their credit, are actually making a move to put the sponge to the glass here in a way that some of these European opera companies are not. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something to to applaud for these for American companies. You know, I think that. You know, uh, in light of the Me Too movement, we know how you know. to deal with repeat sex offenders. <laughs> eventually, <laughs> accused, accused, uh, repeat. eventually, yeah. <laughs> don't sue just yet. Accused, repeat sex oh, offender. God, yeah. give him a half a point. Then we got to move on. Uh, yeah. yeah, Santa Fe. I, I, you know, I, I am astounded. First of all, that they can bring on forty-four apprentices. That is a, that's a big class. Well, when I when I saw it, I was like, oh, we're going to talk about you know the five people they picked, and then I opened the web page. I'm like, oh yeah. no, there's so yeah. many. I mean, exactly. oh yes, that's a lot of people. Oh but yeah, I just absolutely. wonder what they're going to do all summer. Well, they, I mean, they have lots of duties. They'll be singing a lot and some of them are, are returning of course so it's not like it's 44 right, yeah. new but the bottom line is that they're fairly evenly spread between sopranos and mezzo sopranos which completely unfairly there are more of those singers trying to get in and then fewer of them are taken and mm-hmm. the repertoire has you know fewer of those roles there's one bass now, uh, also, and there's one countertenor. <laughs> At least they took funny. one. At least they took one. I don't know how much work you can get them. I love the geographic distribution of that. A couple of names that I recognize: Quinn Middleman, a, mm-hmm. uh, a Chicagoan of of sorts. Um, Emma Rose Sorensen, who is from Chicago. I I think she might be have been on the show. I know we've talked about her before. And yes, Meridian Prawl coming out of Edwardsburg, Michigan, representing <laughs> Southeast Michigan. Population of Edwardsburg, 1,259. And he just that knew that off the top very, of his head, folks. I did look that up. Good for her. <laughs> that is very much the the town that I came from. It's it's about that size. One thing that I did notice, because yeah, I did the same thing. I opened the page and was like, boy, howdy, that's a lot of headshots. Um, but even with the black and white uh, you know, tone of all of the headshots, you did notice a very nice um we'll call it a shade range. Uh there was a lot of diversity mm. there, which was mm-hmm. really yeah. nice to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's I was really worried because Santa Fe is one of, I mean, they do good work and they're, but they're considered a stalwart and those guys tend to air, especially when it comes to things like young artist programs. So to see the amount of diversity that I saw on that page, even though I didn't recognize a ton of the names because I am now, as we mentioned, an old lady, um, it was very (laughs) nice to see that many people and that many different looking people on the page. A thousand Lots of future friends of shows uh, on that list. Yeah. The 7-Eleven of Doom. (laughs) This uh, what study? <laughs> he says studies have shown that opera music is boring. I'm like, what studies? I need sight. Show your work, buddy. Show your work. <laughs> well, I feel like this happens occasionally. I feel like every every year or so there'll be a story that pops up like this, and it makes me so angry every single time. Um, not not just because you know it's always the implication is that opera is you know annoying, so annoying people won't want to be there. Um, but also I think much more importantly, the fact that they are using it as a deterrent to drive, you know, people who are just, you know, homeless and trying to, you know, get by, uh, away, you know, from, you know, uh, whatever shelter and people coming by, you know, to, who could give them, you know, a little bit of help. It's, it's this whole, you know, notion of, 
anti anti homeless people that has just kind of infected the mindsets of a lot of cities where you try to legislate it away rather than helping people and it, exactly. it's really frustrating that's to me. exactly right yeah, it, yeah. It, you know the, the problem here is not that they're using opera music or cla- classical music right like it could be uh polka on the accordion which i don't like and it would still be problematic which is that we are not trying to actually get to the root of a problem here and uplift unhoused and underhoused people yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the challenging part about this is that it's, you know, the fact that this was a news item at all, they they use the idea that it was opera as like a kitschy. This is like one of the last shows or the last items you would hear about in a C block on a 10 o'clock news broadcast for local exactly. news. Like that's what the <laughs> exactly. story is. I mean, the challenge of this, though, is that Austin right now is experiencing an insanely disproportionate unhoused growth in than it has you know seven eight years ago so that i mean yeah like you guys mentioned that's that's the real heart of the issue i it doesn't really matter what music is being used but like maybe we write more stories about what people are doing to help the unhoused instead of talking about how they're annoyed with nesundorma yeah exactly bye bye russia yikes See ya. I mean, in other news, water's wet and the sky's blue. Film at eleven. Um, you know, this is unsurprising. I appreciate people taking more of a more of a public stance on it. But yeah, it's what are we gonna do? I mean, Lithuania. What are they gonna do? Like, you know, there are they part of the UN? I can't remember. Um, no, I don't think so. Sorry, but is yeah. Lithuania part of the UN? I, oh, assume, I mean, no. I, I, yeah, I assume you meant EU, but I, I don't. That's what I meant. So. Sorry, there yeah, were yeah. letters involved, and I was ro- I was scrolling <laughs> on my document, and I wasn't he- explaining what was coming out of my mouth. Are they part of the yes. EU? I forgot. Oh, yes, they are. I Lithuania well, is part of the EU. Yeah, got it. Got uh, it. Yeah, uh, Britain would not be. Uh, sorry, <laughs> Britain would not be part of the EU. <laughs> they, they, As they we all know. Me. Whoops. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I, I, God. I mean, I, I've we've talked about this before. I I think that you know, uh, I think. You know, personally uh, censoring uh, Russian opera, Russian works is artistically a a mistake. I think there are great opportunities to be, you know, anti-Putin without being, you know, uh, uh, anti-Russian art. But that being said... I do think Lithuania is pretty close to the action there. They're uh, they're for much sure, closer man. than I am, you for know. Sure, and for sure, it might be the uh, for for like uh, for a country like that, maybe there's something to be said for uh, just canceling it, canceling those sorts of things outright. Um, but I, I would encourage you know uh, any artists out there who are considering not doing something by Russia, like use. Use your Boris Gudinovs and stuff to like, you know, talk about those anti-imperialistic messages that, you know, are and like make it public, make it public knowledge that this is a criticism. You know, don't just hide behind the fact that you're putting on something that is Russian. Uh, really publicly use that to speak out against it. I think that's more powerful personally, but I can't begrudge Lithuania that being that close to this decision. I think they're they're doing the best with what they can, and I, I support them. And lastly, Opera Europa getting its uh, staff um, traded up, traded around. Laura Berman, she's American, by the way. She was born in Boston. Oh. Now she's the intendant of... Stadtsuper Hanover, which is she's really I parked think... a car in the in the intendant's yard. <laughs> she is, that was just yeah. Okay, let's we gotta wrap this show up. Good call, bad call on Opera Box Score. Ah, uh, Weston, 
please never try and do a Boston accent <laughs> ever again in my presence. So Leave proud it to of anybody. Will yeah. you? So proud. However, I will let you go first on Good Call, Bad Call. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to see there was no hard, uh, hard feelings. Uh, I they were I, brief. <laughs> Last week, I saw a uh, a few days ago, really, I saw a neat concert with the Chicago Philharmonic, um, which included a um, a uh, I believe it was a world premiere performance of uh, the composer Tan Dun's um, uh, guitar concerto, which was really interesting because it used a lot of flamenco uh, influences combined with like pipa influences and. uh, Tandon has, has been kind of like on uh, on the fringes of the of you know uh, my musical world for a long time. The first time I ever saw anything by him was way way back when the Met did the live in HD of the first Emperor. Um, I think I think that was the first one they did, as a matter of fact. Um, and it was kind of nice to see you know his development because that's really the last time I really like engaged with his music very uh, very specifically and I, I just thought it was really cool to to see something like that that wasn't exactly opera but what um, was a neat little guitar concerto that I in a way I'd never heard before Ashley Hardgrave um, congratulations to friend of the show and friend of me, uh, Janai Berger, for being the <laughs> Opera News February cover story. Uh, she is the cover gal for February's edition. I am super excited for her to be getting this recognition. Uh, and while she is talented, I will say the photos from the shoot are deadly. She looks yeah. Amazing. That's awesome. Fantastic. Uh, PBS is presenting Kathleen Battle and Jesse Norman's uh, The Magic of Spirituals concert next month on PBS, promoting Black History Month. Uh, Friend of the show, Aileen Perez, gets an interview in Forbes magazine, which is pretty cool. Although in that article, she reveals rather specifically where she lives in New York. I was kind of surprised about that. And lastly, (laughs) uh, if you haven't already, I do highly recommend... uh, Puss in Boots 2, The Last Wish. (laughs) Go on. I saw that with my children as uh, winter break was drawing to a painful close. A little bit too much time in dad camp, and so we all ended up in the (laughs) movie theater. Delightful. Antonio Banderas and Salma Hayek are the two main voices, and it's just utterly delightful. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Send us that voice memo. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. And you can find links to stuff we've talked about at our website, operaboxscore.com. And that is also where you can put your money where our mouths are. Give back (laughs) to the OBS on our donate page. Your announcer is Norm Waddell, your creative consultant, Oliver Camacho, and your audio editor is Weston Williams. For your co-host, Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera, but not in a lift. We're back with an all-new show next week. We go inside the huddle with Grammy Award-winning conductor Gil Rose. Plus, you're going to get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more... Down, 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 down. Mm. Down, down, down. Yeah. Good, 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 good.